0: Growing up, it seems like something we've all dreamed of, being the best in the world at something. For me, and for lots of people I know, this meant dreaming of becoming world number one in a sport. For our guest on this episode, that dream came true very early in life. At the age of just 16, Alex Mason was crowned Slackline World Champion at the GoPro Mountain Games in Colorado. From giving slacklining a try in the local gym, to turning pro, competing around the world, and working with the tricklining founding father, Andy Lewis, Alex has reached incredible heights, but has now decided to go back to his studies. This is an inspiring story of turning a hobby into a profession, of picking things up as you go, and of learning from everybody in every way, and it's our privilege to share it with you on One of the Eight.
1: And just being able to see, you know, happiness in other people from all everywhere, right, and, and kindness, and, and just excitement, um, and how just utterly universal these emotions are.
0: I'm Jake Worley, and this is One of the Eight, bringing you the real-life stories of real-world people, the things they have achieved, and the things that have inspired them. Hi, everyone. In today's episode on the One of the Eight podcast, we get to go back into the slackline world and explore the mind of a slackliner who's demonstrated his incredible talents in Hawaii, Lebanon, and Turkey, to name a few, performing pretty incredible stunts across washing lines and in front of solar eclipses. After such an incredible rise to his field at such a young age, today's guest has now got his feet fully back on the ground as he looks to graduate from college. So I'm keen to find out more about his past, his present, and what's in store for the future. So Alex, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. So I'd like to open up with the same question that I asked your good friend Andy Lewis, as I'm fascinated to know how your journey started. So could you give us a little bit of a background as to what your childhood was like, which wasn't too long ago?
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm definitely, I would call myself still a child in every <laughs> sense, really. I think college is very much filled with children. Um, <laughs> let's see, my, my early childhood, I, so I started slacklining when I was about, probably 11 and started really getting into it. I was like 12 and 13. Um, I grew up in, in El Cerrito, California, which is just North of Berkeley in the Bay area. And um, so I, me and my twin sister started rock climbing um, when we were very young, like nine or 10 at a, um, a local rock climbing gym called Bridges rock gym, which is where I, would spend just about all my time. (laughs) Uh, And so we started rock climbing and we really liked it and, you know, trained quite a bit all the time. And there there were also slack lines at the gym. And so whenever, you know, I'd get tired of rock climbing or my sister would start to be better than me at rock climbing, (laughs) I would just kind of retreat to the slack line. And I mean, it didn't, I had no intentions of, of really like taking it seriously in the beginning. Um, I was just doing it obsessively just because it made me really happy. Um, I really enjoyed it and I kind of got better and better. And uh, the owner of the gym, this guy named Damien Cooksey, who is actually a a good friend of Andy as well, um, kind of started to take notice and you know, phone calls were made and whatnot. And it it started out very informal. And I mean, slacklining was so, so small at the time. It was such a, such a niche sport. And it still is in many ways um, that, you know, it it never kind of, there was no moment in my mind where I was like, oh my God, this is something that I'm doing now.
0: I think it was, um, I saw a video where your parents were interviewed and they were saying that as a child, slacklining seemed to be the first thing that you as you said like just fully focused on and just completely stuck with
1: yeah it was um i mean in many ways it was kind of the first thing that really made me happy um i mean i, I think at that age you're kind of you're searching for something you know like what is it and the more i trained it i got better and the more the better i got i the more i had fun um, and everything just kind of seemed to align
0: And so, um, as you mentioned there, the the owner at the gym was good friends with Andy, and it was at the rock climbing gym um, where it would be, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's where you and Andy first met, and I think it'd be fair to say that you and him formed quite a special bond, and um, I guess was he one of your early influencers and kind of taught you some of the stuff that he was working on at the time?
1: Yeah, actually, um, when I was really young and first getting into it, uh, I had maybe... I actually don't think I... No, I must not. I hadn't even gone to a competition yet. Um, And Andy... So Andy lives also, or grew up also in the Bay Area. Um, He actually grew up like 40 minutes away from me. Um, And he actually helped build the rock climbing gym that I learned to slackline and trained at all the time. Um, To kind of come full circle. (laughs) Um, But yeah, one day I, I was slacklining and he showed up and kind of taught me some some pretty basic tricks at the time you know like the fundamentals almost it was it was quite a movie moment <laughs>
0: um <laughs> and the, the thing that i found interesting in reading more about your relationship with him is that you know as our listeners all will, will know from the episode that we did with him he is considered you know by by most in the in this world the the father of slacklining and What I found interesting in the video that I watched where he was talking about you, he said that he considers you his mentor. And I kind of thought, you know, for someone who's so young and has come into it at such a, you know, a a fresh age versus someone like Andy who's kind of been around developing it, that must have been, I mean, that's huge given his pedigree that, you know, he considers you in any form that way.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, that's, I love Andy to death. I, I, I suppose... We both mentored each other in different ways. Um, I mean, at the time, Andy was one of the only people I was really traveling with consistently. So he was all there all the time. Um, And we became really good friends pretty quickly. Um, And I I think in the beginning, he he taught me quite a bit about slacklining. I mean, just literally taught me tricks and whatnot. Um, But I also kind of... I learned a lot about life from Andy, um, okay. <laughs> which is good never things, a, g- a good things, sentence in between. that you should, you know, say learning about life from Andy Lewis. Um, <laughs> I definitely picked up a lot of bad habits from Andy. Um, I picked up a lot of good habits, but I think at the end of the day, it was a net positive. Um, and <laughs> I like to think that we kind of rounded each other out. You know, I, I was when I first got into slacklining. I, I was, a th- I, I would call myself a fairly timid um, child. I mean, I was raised uh, by by two hopeless academics. Um, kind okay. of ex- extreme sports were were not something that my family really thought about at all. Um, I didn't have a TV growing up because my parents were hopeless academics. <laughs> um, <laughs> And so I, I didn't get to see, you know, BMX or anything. And YouTube came around at some point and I started kind of, you know, oh, that's cool and whatnot. But it, it, wasn't, it wasn't really something that previous to slacklining and rock climbing, I'd ever given any thought whatsoever. Um, and so I was somewhat timid coming into slacklining, you know. Things, things were scary uh, because they should be. And Andy kind of helped me get over a lot of that. And I, I would like to think that I helped Andy get over um, his, the opposite of that, which is nothing scary, you know. So to kind of put it in perspective, Andy Lewis <laughs> told me uh, one time, you know, back – this was fairly recent, I think, but back when he was competing um, in the cycling competitions – every time before, you know, it's like the final round, right? Um, he would kind of mentally prepare himself <laughs> um, in a just absurd way. He, he would <laughs> be okay with dying if it meant winning, you know? like Wow, yeah. Like, that was just this intense focus and disregard for, you know, bodily injury. And I like to think that I, I convinced him away from that, you know, like pushed him away from the disregard for <laughs> bodily injury. <laughs> yes. And I'd like to think that he pushed me towards disregard for harm.
0: <laughs> okay. No, it's interesting. It's really interesting. Um, and I guess whilst you were, you were touring around with him and learning more and then, you know, you started to find some real success in the competition side of things, did you feel... A lot of pressure at such a young age to you know kind of have you know being considered with such respect at that age in the field that you were involved in
1: there was an immense amount of pressure um I never took too much time to consider it but it was kind of an ever ever present weight um I was really competitive um I think it was more with myself really than than anybody else but i i did feel immense pressure to win okay. um which is slightly unfortunate especially in hindsight um because i, I mean I you, felt... were,
0: you were really young at this point right you you mean you're yeah. not just talking about like you know a, a mid-20 year old you were genuinely very very young and competing you know uh, on a world scale
1: yeah, no. I mean, I was try. I spent, I think, since my 14th birthday until fairly recently, I spent just a- the majority of every summer um, traveling around Europe in a van with Andy and a bunch of other slackliners, um, and just traveling back and forth from from competition to competition.
0: Did you enjoy that side of it?
1: Yeah, no, it was a blast. I mean, it was a- it was a great way to spend my summers growing up Slack money was is such an international sport i mean we we would have a, a japanese athlete a couple brazilian athletes a spanish athlete polish athletes like literally just from <laughs> everywhere on the globe you know um
0: which must and, have been fantastic at such a young age because i mean most people at that age kind of usually only really see what's around them, which is often, most of the time, the same as themselves.
1: Yeah, it was... Um, it was pretty absurd. <laughs> um, in the beginning, right, when I was, like, first starting to travel, a lot of a lot of the other athletes were first starting to travel for slack money as well. And the language barrier, I think that the first summer that we all got together, the, the language barriers between every single one was were just ridiculous i mean <laughs> th- none of the brazilians spoke english well <laughs> right they, they speak portuguese and maybe and right. a little spanish right and so to get a message from like one one randomly selected person in the group to another randomly selected person in the group you would have to figure out a chain of people who. Who had a mutual language in common, and you had to play this absurd game of telephone, right? (laughs) Like, you'd have to find somebody, you know, who spoke Spanish and Portuguese to to get a get a message to the Brazilian athletes, you know, through somebody who had those mutual, you know, languages, right? Uh, And then, you know, furthermore, to get to get something to the to the Japanese guy whose name is Gepai, great guy. Um you you'd have to find somebody who spoke this and then that and then it it was I mean it was very sitcom-esque.
0: <laughs> so I mean with with these groups of guys that you are or you know, traveling around with and finding different ways to communicate with, you are you've been part of some absolutely phenomenal projects that are, I guess, both incredibly inspiring and frightening at the same time. And I'd love to talk a little bit about some of them with you. And the first I'd love to hear about is the, uh, the sequence that you did in Hawaii, which, which I think was called Slack Ladder. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about kind of how that came about and what the setting was like?
1: Um, so it's hard to say how the idea for Slack Ladder came about. Um, I think somebody offhandedly mentioned something, you know, the idea of kind of ascending some sort of structure with, you know, crisscrossed inner, inner you know, connected slack lines and whatnot. Um, yeah. But I think the original, I mean, sketch of this was on like a building somewhere in San Francisco. Like that was the original idea. And um, it just morphed and morphed um, into, let's do it in a jungle, blah, 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 right? just through the chain of command through Red Bull, yeah. which I should probably talk about as well. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and it, it, it finally, we finally kind of decided on this location in Hawaii. Right? To back up, when I was about 16 or 17, um, I think I was 17 actually, um, I got picked up by Red Bull, which was a f- fantastic opportunity. Um, and that's when these kind of big film projects started to be to be possible, because I mean, the fundamental thing in slacklining, with or with really any niche sport, is um, it's really hard to find the money to do these really impressive projects. You know, yes, you have the athletes who are willing and really want to, but um, you know, without a hundred thousand dollars, y- you just can't get a professional film crew to some corner of the world and get the permits and all this stuff. And Red Bull very much had that. You know, they had departments dedicated to getting permits for <laughs> for things right, okay. like this right um and so working with them was fantastic you know they would come to me with ideas and i I'd go to them with ideas and um and we made some truly amazing stuff happen which slack ladder was really the first big project that we did um anyway so yeah, we decided no, on hawaii
0: i like that little back step there it was, it was fascinating.
1: It, it, it's important to like to really emphasize that like this was I was going from traveling around Europe you know in a tiny van filled with <laughs> packed to the brim with like nine people none of which really spoke the same language <laughs> um, to suddenly you know we have a $200,000 budget to go to Hawaii with like a full crew <laughs> and it, so I'm kind of, like, shocked and awed by the whole thing. And we get to Hawaii to do the first site visit, and um, it, it becomes apparent that the location that we end up using, um, this was perfect. You know, we had the waterfalls. It was, it was private land, so permits weren't going to be an issue. Um, all this stuff, and it, and it started to click and make sense, right? I, pre- I pretty much told them, <laughs> if we can make this safe, i'm you know i'm completely in and my memory my recollection is that they told me not to worry about the safety because that was their job and, you know they'll take care of it
0: even though it's you up there on the line
1: <laughs> yeah well i mean I, I trusted i i trusted them that they would be able to make things safe they they don't want to put their athletes in danger they're good people right um, but I think I, I trusted them a little bit too much. I, I probably should have been a little more proactive in that. I just like, all right, they'll make it safe. Don't have to think about this ever again. <laughs> <laughs> um, but with that out of the way, you know, we we're, we were just dead sad. And we, we came back a couple months later with a full crew. Um, we, actually, we actually shot with um, a guy named Keith Ledzinski, who's... Um, a super famous National Geographic photographer, and oh, wow, a, a buddy of Andy as well, um, and I mean, and a fantastic guy, um, super interesting. Yeah, I mean, it, it, we had a really good crew, and it was just an amazing opportunity. But with with having you know, essentially the way I saw it, the way it was really was, I. Have, I'm going to Hawaii, and then, you know, 20-odd 20, 20 people are coming to Hawaii and depending on me to do my thing, right? Yes. And so the pressure of doing these projects, like, once you're in the moment, of, of getting this done, um, I think in a lot of ways was really more pressure than than competing because, I mean – Competing, if you lose, you lose, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, it's just on you.
1: Yeah, then so it goes. You had a bad day, right? But I mean, if a company spent you know, however many $100,000 and flew, flew 20 people out to Hawaii, and then you lose, right? You really blew it. Like directly for like 20 people. And then there goes... A massive amount of money. And so that kind of direct pressure was pretty intense.
0: So I guess, um, I mean, you haven't quite finished college yet, but you, I mean, you're almost there. So you've been there a good while. I get, is it fair to say that kind of the pressures and with all of the expectations on a project like that could probably teach you just as many
1: life lessons as going through four years of college? I think the quantity, perhaps, yeah. I mean, dealing with pressure is, I think, what life kind of comes down to in a lot of ways. Um, and I definitely learned how to communicate with adults, you know, at a young age. Um, yes. And I, I, it's kind of hard to, to quantify, you know, how many life lessons I learned growing up in this way, because, you know, there was no lesson plan. There were no bullet points, things. I just kind of pick things up and learn things. Um, it, it's definitely a different kind of of learning. I think extremely valuable.
0: Yeah, oh, for Absolutely. sure. Um, like you say, especially at such a young age. Um, and again, even still at such a young age, you know, further to doing this incredible project in Hawaii this next project, it's how I actually first came across you when I saw, I saw this video of you, and I, I believe it was in Turkey, when you were doing, um, you were slacklining across what ca- kind of looked like washing lines through a street. Could you talk to us about this one?
1: Yeah, so that was in Istanbul. Um, I actually hi- hired Andy for that job as well. Um, so, yes, yeah, so we were shooting in the old town in Istanbul, Turkey. Um, the they weren't actually washing lines <laughs> they were actually slack lines um but okay. they were made to look like washing lines that was kind of the aesthetic we were going for yeah it was it was a very interesting project
0: was this another red bull project
1: yes um this was red bull turkeys kind of idea and that got passed on to to my athlete manager within red bull and got it in the works um it was really. It, it was. It's always been really fascinating shooting video in like a variety of countries um, and and places, um, and definitely kind of seeing the the juxtaposition of an eighty thousand dollar camera surrounded by immense poverty is is a very humbling thing to see <laughs> in any yeah. context. And I guess um,
0: that's quite. That's quite a. Quite a mature thing to be aware of at the point that you're doing that really
1: yeah I mean it was kind of a constant I, we were we were also filming we filmed in Istanbul but there were a couple other projects in, in that kind of area of the world right we, we filmed in um, in Egypt and, and Lebanon and and, and whatnot and all the time you know the film crews are always kind of more or less the same. They have a general same structure. Because to be a film crew, you, you have to have a really nice camera. I mean, that's kind of 80% of the job or however much. Yes. You know. Uh, and so wherever we're filming, there's this kind of inherent, obvious money, right? And then we're filming in Brazil and just all sorts of impoverished areas. I don't quite know what to take from it, but it was a very, it is spectacular in its own way. Yeah. Um, anyway, back to Istanbul. Yeah, it was fun. So, so Andy rigged, we're kind of, <laughs> I, I hired Andy for the project because Andy always finds a way to rig a slack line. I mean, you give Andy pretty much any, any terrain, any area whatsoever. Right. And he said, look, I need, I need a slack line and it needs to have these qualities. Right. And if you give Andy enough time, he'll figure out a way. It won't necessarily be safe in the slides, but <laughs> it'll be there, you know? Right. Um, and traditionally, like by the books, industrial riggers would never dream of rigging a slack line. That's not safe. <laughs> like, right. w- well, we can't do that because it's not safe, but, in reality, usually there's no real way to make everything safe, you know. And and Andy was just—he was—he was the best at at that at making okay. things not quite safe. So Andy's kind of rigging in between these these like hundreds of years old buildings, right? Um, and from house to house, and kind of like right. ev- everybody on the street just opened their doors to us. It was actually really, really fantastic. Um, and, and it was just running in between, like, these, these tiny apartments, <laughs> just, like, frantically rigging from balconies to balconies, <laughs> you, you know, climbing on people's roofs and, you know, like, almost falling off. And it was really, really funny to watch the, the, the locals watch <laughs> – Watch Andy. You know, just kind of watching people try to understand who Andy Lewis is, never having seen him before, is hilarious in any context. But, but these people had really never seen Andy. I mean, he, he's like <laughs> six foot two with his massive, you know, afro of, of hair, just like scaling buildings with like. <laughs> it was pretty fun.
0: Yeah, I mean, that was something that I loved in this particular video was they captured, you know, in and amongst some of your insane skills up on those slack lines, the the genuine kind of fascination from some of the people in the buildings watching it as well, which I thought, apart from making it really authentic, it was just great to see, like you say, such clearly very local faces watching a very unlocal person doing very unlocal things.
1: Hey. Yeah, no, it's fun going. It's fun really anywhere, anywhere you go to watch that. That's kind of why, you know, what what it's all about is, you know, like introducing these new ideas to people who have never seen it before.
0: Something that I thought about, which is clearly somebody who is not in the mindset to be a slackliner, um, somebody that. You know, I tried to go professional at tennis when I was younger and I would always try to I'd have to be getting out of school to go to practice and tournaments and stuff. So. <laughs> I wondered I wonder if Alex I'd love to see the conversation he would have with his teachers when he explained the reason that he was going to need to miss class for a trip like this
1: <laughs> <laughs> um yeah my my teachers were very supportive always I mean They loved it, and and they were very eager to treat it, um, you know, kind of similar in in a sense to what you were saying about tennis. Um, You know, saying that I need to – I'm going to be gone for a week because I'm going to be in Europe for a competition is usually received pretty well.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But not your usual competition for somebody your
1: age or anybody's age, really. Definitely not. But it became – at all the schools, I I was at you know middle school and elementary school, middle school and high school really. was when I was missing school for slacklining. I pretty quickly became known as you know the slackliner, especially amongst <laughs> yeah. the faculty. Um, and so I was given a lot of a lot of leeway for that.
0: So the um the the third project I'd love to talk about, which. I'm not sure if you had to miss school for this one i'm not sure fully what age you were at at this point was the uh the solar eclipse project that you did i watched a full kind of i think there's like a 30 or 40 minute video that i just couldn't keep my eyes off it was really fascinating and um you know you were obviously i think it was the video that i watched of you where you looked most concerned about it going right both from a kind of safety point of view and a visual
1: point of view so the solar eclipse project was it was very much a moment of of truth. I mean, it was really well received um, by Red Bull higher ups, um, which meant we were more or less written a, a kind of a, a blank check for it. Um, <laughs> and that was taken advantage wow. of, as I remember. So, just <laughs> immense amounts of of time and energy went into kind of planning and, and making this thing happen and getting the permits it was shot in Jackson Hole Wyoming um, over this very famous um, geographical landmark uh, Corbett's Coular which in, in, the, in the winter is a really really famous um, like skiing and snowboarding kind of right. alley through these two massive you know cliff faces and whatnot um, and so, Jackson Hole, Wyoming, or whatever entity, kind of controls the permitting for them. They basically, yeah, you can, you know, you can shoot over this. Um, and so, in addition to this massive amount of manpower and time and energy and everything that went into this, um, we were literally doing this during a total solar eclipse. <laughs> wow! Right, like. The timing literally has to line up with, like, the sun, the moon, and the earth. And, you know, like, there, in other projects, you know, if it doesn't go well, theoretically, you can do it again, right? A, better. You've learned something, right? You can do it again at a different time. But this was really it. Like, this was all we have. Jackson. If we want to do this in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, during a solar eclipse total solar eclipse right the next chance we would have i think is in like a hundred something years right like it's <laughs> it's not coming again basically. yeah no it's not where there's not going to be a second chance
0: so when you're you're up there on that line and you know the moment comes where the full eclipse happens and you're kind of up there doing your thing what what's going through your head is it is it relief is it fear is it What's going through your head in that moment when, you know, the shock comes around?
1: It's, I mean, it, it, it's fear. But, I mean, even fear is kind of a complicated emotion. Something that Andy kind of told me that I have always tried to believe is that fear and our, fear and excitement are the same thing. You know, trying to internalize that at all times, right? I'm, I'm popping this slack line. There's just an immense amount of pressure. I also, it should be noted, during that project had um, pretty gnarly altitude sickness <laughs> the entire time. Oh, wow. Time. <laughs> yeah, so I, I felt horrible <laughs> physically. That, that, so how do you, when you're up there
0: lines. on that line, how do you deal with that fear?
1: Um, you, you don't really deal with it. I mean, you kind of just, you have to overcome it. You know, there, there isn't really another option. That's kind of, it's just telling yourself, convincing yourself, this is just something you have to do. I mean, the only, the only real way, I think, to deal with fear like that, in my experience anyway, is to kind of, is after the fact, right? To kind of analyze you know, I was this afraid and this is what ended up happening and, you know, kind of trying, trying to draw conclusions post-event. Um, but in, in the moment, it, I think it really it, it comes down to a game of kind of just really convincing your inner self that, you know, however scared you are, it, it just simply doesn't matter because there is no other option. You know, this is what you have to do. And kind of getting to that point of, you know, utter certainness about attempting something is really the um the hard part.
0: Someone who's performed these insane stunts and all around the world and, you know, like you said, filming moments that only come around every couple of centuries or so, it's hard to believe that you're now back in what, you know, quote unquote normal life at college. What changed?
1: It became time. (laughs) Um, So, to give a little backstory, right? My my parents are both hopeless academics, which I already mentioned. But um, they both have PhDs, and um, my dad got four degrees from UC Berkeley, and and immediately immediately turned around, and I mean, didn't even stop and get a real job. (laughs) Just immediately started working for UC Berkeley, Um, and. It's kind of, I joke around that he, he's never had a real job, right? And <laughs> <laughs> he actually recently um, retired or graduated, <laughs> <laughs> right. depending on who you look at it. But um, and then my, my mom also, she got three degree PhD and all this stuff, right? And so I think that just about everybody in my family has gone to grad school. My, my grandfather was a professor as well. And so, there, I mean, there was kind of an immense, unspoken pressure to go to college, which I wanted to do, you know. Um, and it, it was always kind of a certainty in my life that at some point I would have to take school seriously, which is hard to do when you're literally not in the country.
0: Yeah, I mean, it must, must have been quite tough thing to kind of mentally agree to to go traveling the world seeing all of these things that a lot of people will never ever see to then I mean okay it's a it's a fantastic school but you're essentially switching being in Hawaii to sitting in a classroom doing classes with everyone else
1: so I there was kind of an adjustment period right Um, there was for the first two years of college I was trying to kind of live both lives where I was traveling all around the globe, and then coming back and, you know, trying to do school. And it was pretty, um, it wasn't going to work. It it really just, I was stretched way too thin, right? And it, it was just immense stress on kind of both sides of my life. And it really just amounted to me. Not doing a very good job in, in kind of either aspect of my life, um, which is regrettable. But it eventually kind of became apparent that that it was time to take school seriously, um, and i I really enjoyed I really enjoyed it in the past two years, um, so kind of getting to immerse myself in my degree and, and whatnot.
0: So what's the uh, what's the plan moving forward? What, what's, what's kind of your, what's in your head once college finishes?
1: I have made a point of, of not having any plans, really. <laughs> I, um, <laughs> you know, for, for so long in my life, I would, I would really try to kind of plan everything down to a T and be really meticulous um, and get really dead set on, you know, specifics and whatnot. Um, and it was just, Kind of every time that they didn't work out, it was heartbreaking. I'm just kind of over that, you know. I'm gonna do my best and see see where it takes me, really.
0: And is there a uh, is there a plan in in the lack of plan to pick slacklining back up at some point?
1: Um, perhaps I I would like to um, kind of transition away from the. Immediate athletics of 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 the sport, right? And and try to kind of transition into more of kind of a, a production side of things of, of making these events happen, right? Um, I mean, I just don't. I'm not going to be in competition shape. <laughs> it's I'm you know I'm not going to be the best in this sport, right? Um, after college, but I, I do know. A lot about the sport and I know who to talk to to make what you know whatever somebody wants to do happen you know I and I have kind of amassed these contacts and um it would be nice to kind of be able to provide the experience that I had growing up to to other people uh, yeah so that's I, a
0: fantastic uh, way of looking at it
1: I'm definitely not opposed to to kind of getting back into it in that sense but whether it be a full-time job or whether it be kind of just independent contacting or, or what have you I'm, I'm trying not to worry about too much and I'm also kind of playing with the idea of going to grad school um, I would <laughs> as I would be the first one in my family not to
0: <laughs> most people it's the other way around
1: yes I know <laughs> <laughs> I think actually I think I'd be the first one in my family not to go to grad school in just about a century. But oh, well, yeah, uh,
0: no pressure on that one. But
1: yeah, no pressure whatsoever.
0: So, my last question for you as we get each of our guests on our podcast to do, we'd like to find out about something that has inspired you throughout your life. It can either be someone or something, but we'd like to know so far, Alex, who or what has inspired you?
1: That is an interesting question it's really kind of just everybody I meet inspires me um in just about every way I really try to see the see good parts in everybody you know like everybody I meet in in these foreign countries right and and just being able to see you know happiness in other people from all everywhere, right? And, and kindness and and just excitement um, and how just utterly universal these emotions are has really I think been probably one of the most inspiring things um, in my life. Um, and just kind of seeing, you know just learning from everybody in every way. I, It would be hard for me to kind of you know say here's a specific person that, that inspires yes. me i mean throughout my young childhood andy lewis definitely inspired me in, in many ways but there were also many ways that he didn't inspire me and then <laughs> damien cooksey the, the guy who owned, owns the rock climbing gym that i you know really grew up in inspires me in, in a multitude of ways and and my parents inspire me in a vast amount of ways, but in a very, you know, a set of a different, a different way of, of just, you know, focusing on academics and, and finding something you love it in that side of the world. Um, so, yeah, just kind of all in all, pretty much just about everybody in me inspires me. Um, and that's kind of a mindset I, I try to go through through life. Yeah, I mean,
0: that's a that's a fabulous answer. Yeah. Um... I, I love it and i think it's something that we can all take something away from i mean if you're finding inspiration in you know such simplicity of the people around you and their emotions then i think that's a, a good way to make a fulfilling life so thank you for sharing it with us and of course thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story it's been fantastic
1: sweet thank you so much for having me this is really fun
0: There are almost eight billion people on our planet and Alex Mason is one of the eight. You can discover and see more about Alex, how he transitioned his hobby into world champion status and what has inspired him online at eight.com Everyone has a story to share. Everyone has something to give. Everyone can inspire. One of the eight is a movement of real world people from across the globe, sharing real life stories, inspiring others, enriching lives, and giving something back. I am, you are, everyone is, one of the eight. Now streaming on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Join the movement at oneoftheeight.com.